Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. And we have another listener suggestion this week. So a big shout out to Genesis. She actually suggested one of our cases a couple weeks ago. And she gave me this one as well. And it is quite a case to dive into. So you would assume that a house on the cul-de-sac of a suburb would be perfect for raising kids. Space for pickup basketball games, low traffic, and overall a safe space for children. But in the case we're covering today, a house like this was actually nothing short of a house of horrors. So let's get into it. Now, before I dive into the details of this case, I do want to touch base on a couple of things. First is the name of our victim, Aaron Thompson. Now, she has her name spelled like Aaron with an E at the end. And outside of print, this case is not covered a lot. So I am not able to hear a good pronunciation of her name. So I am going to refer to her as Aaron. And I also, there are a few people that have similar names in this case. We have Aron, and then we have her father, Aaron Thompson, and her brother, Aaron Thompson Jr. So I will refer to her father as Thompson as the last name through the remainder of the episode. So I wanted to clarify that before we got into things. But let's go ahead and get started. Aaron Thompson was born on November 30th, 1998, and both she and her brother Aaron Thompson were born in Michigan. They were born to Aaron Thompson and Lynette Thompson. In 2001, their father moved the children to Colorado, and Lynette would actually never see her children or husband again after this. Lynette was supposed to move with the rest of the family, but at the time that the move occurred, she was hospitalized and could not leave quite yet. She had planned instead to go ahead and finish her recovery and then move to Colorado to be with the family once that was finished. But as she proceeded to get through her recovery, Thompson had called Lynette to tell her, don't move to Colorado. And actually he said, just don't move because he would not tell her where he and the kids were living. Even Lynette's mother-in-law, Thompson's mother, refused to tell her where he and her children were. In the meantime, Thompson had settled in in Colorado and was residing in a home with his live-in girlfriend, Shelly Lowe. Now, the house was a pretty jam-packed place. There were 10 people living in the home. You had Thompson and Shelly Lowe. You had Thompson's two kids, which were Aron and Aaron Thompson Jr., You had Shelly's five children, Andrew Lowe, Tamara Lowe, Kadesha Smith, Eric Williams Jr., and Kayla Williams. Lowe's teenage half-brother, Rajon Russell, also lived in the home, and Shelly Lowe was actually pregnant at the time. The family lived in a home on a cul-de-sac at 16551 East Kepner Place. This was near Buckley Road and Mississippi Avenue in central Aurora. Now, Aurora is a suburb east of Denver. At the time of our story, Aron would have been six years old. On November 14, 2005, 38-year-old Thompson reported Aron missing, and she went missing between 12.30 and 1.30 p.m. 
Thompson told authorities that Arone had run away, and this was supposedly prompted by a fight the two had over a cookie. Thompson spoke to the media the day after Arone went missing on November 15. According to the Associated Press's reporting, Thompson spoke to television media saying, quote, I'm scared for her safety. If anybody has information, please contact the police to bring my baby girl home, unquote. The Aurora police and FBI then went on to conduct a search over the course of three days for the little girl. But doubt about the circumstances of Arone's disappearance started with noticing some odd happenstances. Authorities soon had many reasons to suspect both Lowe and Thompson. Now, this list I'm going to go through was not all known on this particular day by police, but I'm going to put all these odd circumstances together here just to give you what authorities started to build in this case as time went on. When Arone went missing, it was snowing and 30 degrees outside. So this was incredibly dangerous for a truly missing child. But at around 9 p.m. the first day of the search, Thompson told authorities he was tired and he was going to bed. Cooperation from the two adults started to decrease the following day. Now, I will say the family had cooperated in giving DNA samples and fingerprints, and they also arrived for different points that they were questioned. But their statements about what happened were consistently inconsistent. And the couple did not seem overly upset about Arone missing. Lowe, in fact, only seemed to be upset when the other children were being questioned by police. The picture the couple had given of Arone for them to start the search was also kind of suspect. The picture they provided was a year and a half old at that point. Arone was four and a half in the most recent photo the family could supply. This picture was taken in 2002 when the family was on a trip to the Grand Canyon. When Thompson originally reported Arone missing, he said she was seven, but the math said she actually would have only been six. The house seemed to be short a mattress that Arone would have slept in, and Lowe and Thompson claimed that she slept in the same bed as one of the other children. Arone also would have been in the first grade at the time she was reported missing, but she was never enrolled in school. She had also not been registered as a homeschooled student. Lowe gave police the reasoning that they had lost Arone's birth certificate and immunization records, and they needed these in order to enroll her in school. But this was later debunked when they found that the couple was in possession of Arone's birth certificate. In addition to all these points, when they questioned neighbors, neighbors had never seen her. Just a few weeks before Arone was reported missing, Thompson had filled out a request for a nonprofit that gets Christmas presents to children in low economic standing families, and Arone was not listed on this request. The most recent interaction that the family had had was a social worker that came to the home just hours before they reported Arone missing. The social worker had been there about an hour, and she was there to see if they were still eligible for a subsidy that they had been receiving from a charitable organization. The social worker said she did not see Arone, and both Arone and Aaron Jr.'s names were not on the paperwork about the household. Lowe actually called the social worker the following day to basically try to convince her that she had seen Arone, and I'm assuming this was most likely in hopes that the woman would change her statement to police. 
While all of this mounting evidence may have been nothing but circumstantial, a tip received on Wednesday night, November 16th, two days after Arone was reported missing, caused police to stop the search indefinitely. A close family friend called in and said that Arone was killed in the home. And as if that wasn't enough of a shock for police, the tipster also said it could have happened up to 18 months ago. The person that provided the tip said that someone close to Arone killed her. Police believed that the tip only came through at this point because of the amount of media coverage about this case. On November 17th, which is day three after Arone is reported missing, police said that Thompson's missing person report was false. Police still don't really understand why Thompson decided to report Arone missing, but there is some thought that Arone's birthday was coming up on November 30th and that this birthday could have caused him to think differently about the situation or just kind of trigger this response in general. On Friday, November 18th, the search for Arone officially turned to a homicide investigation, with Thompson and Lowe being the key persons of interest. People who supported the couple blamed police for being too short-sighted since they stopped the search for Arone only three days in. According to ABC News' reporting on the case, the spokesman for the family, Sam Riddle, said, quote, Colorado law enforcement authorities ought to be showing a lot more compassion for this family and not misportraying them as non-cooperative. Aurora police, they need to go back to training because this is a family that is in deep pain. Right now, the grandfather and other members of the family are passing out leaflets throughout Aurora trying to find this little girl. The thing that disturbs me a lot, too, is the disparity in treatment that is being afforded to the Thompson family. Vis-a-vis, for example, the treatment that was accorded to the John Bonet Ramsey family in Boulder, Colorado. There is a great disparity in terms of how this family is being treated versus the family of John Bonet Ramsey a few years ago. Unquote. Now, if you're wondering how close these cases were, John Benet Ramsey's case happened in December 1996, which was about nine years earlier. Another thing people that supported the couple pointed out was that Lowe and Thompson had no criminal arrest record, and there was really no explanation for escalation of abuse in the household that would lead to the killing of a little girl. News of her daughter's death reached Lynette. And as I said earlier, Lynette had not seen her daughter since October 2001. This was four years prior to her being reported missing. Lynette Thompson was a drug addict, but she had worked to stay clean and was staying clean. She lived in Detroit in a homeless shelter at the time. When asked about Arone's disappearance, she did believe Arone was a victim of foul play. She told the Aurora Sentinel, quote, what does a six-year-old know about running away, unquote. She also said that Thompson was known to have a temper. The tip that police had received allowed them to get a warrant to search the home, and they did an initial search on November 18th on Friday. The first search of the home was done by the FBI and included the home and a trash truck servicing the home. Some items were taken for further inspection, but what these items were was not released to the public. Police then went in and did a second search a few days later. Also on November 18th, they brought in cadaver dogs and started a search of the backyard of the family's home. These cadaver dogs were supplied by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Texas, and the group offered for the dogs to come back to Colorado for any further searches for Arone. 
Police also talked to the seven other children in the home prior to questioning Thompson and Lowe about the situation. The kids told police that Arone had run away, but in kind of getting them loosened up and talking about other topics, it seemed pretty apparent that they had been coached on what to say about Arone. All seven children, whose ages ranged from six years old to 15 years old, were taken into protective custody. It was believed they were in danger based on what information they had told police over the course of questioning, and this prompted authorities to remove them from the home. Lowe's baby girl was also taken into child protective custody when she gave birth. Thompson and Lowe were allowed to have supervised visitation, but that was the extent of their parental rights. Once all the kids had been removed from the home and placed with foster families, they confirmed that Lowe and Thompson had told them to lie to investigators. The children then went on to talk about enduring physical abuse in the home, and they explained that the beatings could be spurred by anything. Lowe had Thompson beat one of the children with a belt and a bat for eating what she deemed was too much of her cereal. And this was an offense that would always lead to a beating. If one of the children stole food, they would definitely get abused. In some cases, the children would be forced to strip out of their clothes, and they would be beaten with cords, belts, broomsticks, bats, basically anything Lowe and Thompson could get their hands on. The children would sometimes be beaten so viciously they could not sit down after the abuse. And in some cases, the children would be tied to a pole in the basement while they were beaten with whatever object of choice. Some of the children had scars from the abuse they endured in the home, and they recounted that every day, at least one of them was beaten. While all of the children were abused, it seems that Arone may have gotten it more often than anyone. The children remembered that her punishment varied, from being put in closets for extended amounts of time, being beaten for wetting herself, and the other children could not estimate the times that Arone had been beaten because it happened so often. Best the kids could remember, Arone had not been in the house for up to maybe two years. One of her stepbrothers remembered the last time he knew Arone was in the house. He was woken up in the middle of the night and could hear her screams from the basement. Andrew, one of Lowe's sons, noticed a few odd things after the last time he saw Arone. Lowe, who previously had not been a practicer of religion, was going to church and saying nightly prayers. He also started to notice a smell emanating from the basement. Thompson and Lowe told the other children in 2003 that Arone had moved to be with her mother in Michigan. And if the children brought up Arone for any reason, they were met with profanity. They were just to not talk about her. After Arone was gone, the children told investigators that her belongings were bagged up and put in the basement with her mattress. A few stories from people who knew Thompson and Lowe helped police estimate a time frame that Arone may have been killed within. The physical abuse the children recalled ranged from May 12, 2002 up to August 31, 2004. The last time that Arone was seen by any doctor was in May 2002. This was at Aurora South Hospital where she was treated for an abscessed tooth. In summer 2003, Lowe had called her aunt, Velma Jean Belzer, and she told her aunt that she and Thompson had been disciplining one of their daughters and that the daughter had passed out. She asked her aunt what she should do as the child had stopped breathing, and Velma obviously told them to call 911. 
When Velma talked to Lowe a few days later, she asked about the incident and if the girl was okay. According to the Charlie Project, Lowe told her, quote, I took care of it, unquote. Lowe and her aunt spoke really often, multiple times a week. Given how often and to what extent she talked to her aunt, it is notable that Velma heard no more about Arone until she was reported missing in November 2005, two years later. But Lowe's aunt was not the only person Lowe had talked to about an incident like this. Eric Williams Sr. was Lowe's ex-boyfriend, and two of her five kids were fathered by Eric. In either the summer or fall of 2003, Lowe talked to Eric about a situation with Arone. According to Michael Roberts' reporting for Westward, Eric told investigators that Arone, quote, died one evening in the bathtub, unquote, according to Lowe, and that Thompson and Lowe had taken her body and buried it, quote, far away, unquote. In this story from Lowe, Arone was still alive and they saw her take her last breath as they covered her with dirt in her makeshift grave. Supposedly, the couple had decided to get rid of her body as Arone had a scar on her back from their physical abuse. And Lowe seemed not concerned with Arone's death, but that the other children may be removed from their custody if the abuse was found out. A similar story was told by Lowe's friend Tabitha Grave. Tabitha told investigators that Lowe just didn't really like Arone and supposedly had trouble disciplining her. And Lowe had told Tabitha that Arone was in her bed and had somehow died and that she and Thompson then disposed of her body. In this version of the story, the missing person report was a way for the couple to cover up Arone's death. Tabitha said that Lowe seemed really distraught when she told her this, and it made it seem like a genuine accident. Tabitha actually started to record their conversation after Lowe made the admission, and these tapes were eventually handed over to the police. But while these conversations helped put a timeline on when Arone might have actually been killed, unfortunately, these conversations were not reported until Arone went missing. Nobody came forward to authorities prior to that. Police believe that her death took place between May 2002 and August 2004, but most likely happened sometime in 2003 when Arone was four years old. Thompson was held on a $500,000 bond leading up to the indictment, and on a May 2007, he was indicted by a grand jury. The indictment was decided 18 months after he made the call to report Arone missing. Details of this indictment were originally kept pretty protected, both not to taint a potential jury pool and to protect the other children in the case. In this indictment, Aaron Thompson was charged with 60 counts, and these charges included conspiracy, child abuse, contributing to the delinquency of a minor, assault, abuse of a corpse, false reporting, and child abuse resulting in death. The child abuse resulting in death charge is a 48-year sentence on its own. In 2007, a civil case found him guilty, although I don't have a lot of details on this. Lowe was also implicated in the indictment, but died prior to any court proceedings happening. She died in May 2006 at the age of 33. She had had a history of heart disease and had experienced some issues during her most recent pregnancy. Through the course of the investigation, she had refused to speak to police, so we may never know the extent of her involvement in the home. 
Also found out during the indictment, it was explained that Arone was not allowed medical care and was also not well-fed and was most likely malnourished. Thompson's trial started in fall 2009 and took eight weeks. As the trial approached, five of the counts did not stick and he had 55 charges against him going into trial, but this did not deter the prosecution. According to Michael Roberts reporting for Westward, Prosecutor Bob Chappelle said of the case, they, quote, had one enormous advantage going for them. Thompson is demonstrably one of the vilest, beep, to ever draw breath. A glowering slab of doom, according to the seven surviving children, once sentenced to live with him. So horrible were the tales that came out during the course of the long trial that the jury was bound and determined to convict Thompson of something just to put a set of bars between him and them, unquote. And by the beep, I mean the thing a cactus does to your finger when you touch it. Needless to say, the prosecution had a lot to say about Thompson. And as the prosecutor's quote says, all the children testified against Thompson at his trial. And the trial had some side drama of its own. One of the sons of Shelley Lowe that was 14 when Arone went missing took the stand. And this son has been diagnosed with PTSD and major depressive disorder. And there was testimony from his psychotherapist that Colleen Locke reported on for Nine News. The psychotherapist said that the boy had said, quote, she's still alive. They told me to take a butcher knife and finish her off, unquote. Now, this is not really revisited as this child being responsible for Arone's death, but it does speak to the level of abuse in the house. And, you know, if this is something that's a projection of abuse, that would certainly be understandable. Lowe's brother, Rajon Russell, also was cited for indirect contempt of court charges during the proceedings. Russell got on the stand for the prosecution and dodged a lot of questions and his answers did contradict what he had told police previously. He actually cursed on the stand twice and was scolded by District Court Judge Valeria Spencer. Rajon was a witness for the prosecution as he moved into the house in August 2004 and said that he had never even seen Iran and that really played to the prosecution's timeline of her death. Well, when leaving the courtroom and Judge Spencer was not present at this moment, Rajon called the judge a derogatory term, and he did this as he passed Amy Richards, who's one of the prosecutors. Richards then reported this to the judge, and this drew the contempt charge. On the defense's side, their story was that, yes, Thompson knew Arone was dead and helped in getting rid of the body and otherwise covering up her murder. But they insisted that Lowe had actually killed her. In September 2009, Thompson was convicted of child abuse resulting in death. And of the 55 charges against him, he was convicted of 31 of them. These 31 charges were the most serious on the list, while the 22 charges he was acquitted of were mostly those abuse charges regarding the other children in the home. He was sentenced to a total of 114 years in prison. He did decide to appeal this decision, and his case went to the Colorado Court of Appeals. He claimed that he was prevented from using a lawyer of his choice, which is unconstitutional. The lawyer that Thompson wanted to use was a man named David Lane, who is a constitutional attorney. Thompson did not have the means to pay Lane, 
as he was indigent, which means he's basically a client of little means, doesn't have that money to pay for certain things regarding the trial. David Lane ended up representing Thompson for free for two years, and Lane had agreed to work the case if the state of Colorado would pay for experts and other resources to help in his efforts to defend his client. The state of Colorado declined, so Lane did not take on the case, and Thompson was represented instead by public defenders. David Lane also supported him going for the appeal, as he thought that him having to take on public defenders for this reason was unconstitutional. There were also eight other reasons on the appeal, including that the court allowed hearsay, irrelevant, and cumulative evidence into the proceedings, and thus allowed that evidence into the jury's decision. According to Michael Roberts' reporting for Westward, the appeals court had to focus on two things in the appeal argument. Quote, do indigent defendants in criminal cases have, one, a constitutional right to be representative by private counsel who are willing to represent them without cost, and simultaneously, two, a constitutional right to receive state-funded ancillary services such as investigators and experts, unquote. The Colorado Court of Appeals ended up rejecting the argument, and all three judges upheld Thompson's conviction, but they were divided on the answers to these questions. Again, according to Michael Roberts' reporting, Judge Stephanie Aaron Dunn said, quote, In my view, because the trial court erred in failing to recognize its authority to consider and authorize the requested support services, Mr. Thompson effectively was deprived of his Sixth Amendment right to the counsel of his choice, unquote. Due to this view, it could give Thompson another option for an appeal, but I have not found any information that this is being pursued. Today, Arone's body has never been found, and it is believed that she may be buried in a field somewhere. Arone was four foot and 60 pounds, and she was last seen wearing a white sweater with a gray hooded sweatshirt, pink sweatpants, and white sneakers. If you know anything, no matter how small, that might lead to the location of Arone's body, please call the Aurora Police Department at 303 627 3100. Now keep in mind, they did say that her body was far away, so she could be anywhere in Colorado or even in the surrounding states. So for my listeners that are nearby, keep an eye out. This is a pretty wild case, so I have a lot of thoughts on it, as you know I always do. Using number one, I do want to touch base on the question of if the family was cooperative or not. And I think something that was missing from a lot of these reports is that just because you go in for questioning and you agree to give these things doesn't mean you are actually cooperative in questioning. So even though the couple, you know, gave DNA and fingerprints and arrived for questioning and whatnot, we do know that Lowe never spoke directly to police. And we do know that a lot of statements that Thompson made were inconsistent. So just because you go to everything doesn't mean you're actually being cooperative. Musing number two, I have to really wonder if Thompson had never reported Arone missing, would anyone ever know that she was gone, that she'd been killed, that she disappeared or whatever? Like obviously nobody noticed in a year and a half or two years. So they potentially could have gotten away with this all if he had not done that. Musing number three, I do find it really interesting that this was the timing for making a report about her going missing because it is 
very easily explained away of who would run away in that weather. You don't see runaways leave when it's 30 degrees and snowing outside. Musing number four. I wanted to touch on the part where he, where Thompson said that Aron was seven and she was actually six. I could see how this would easily happen because it's got to be easy to forget that exact timeline when you aren't celebrating somebody's birthday. Musing number five. So given how much Lowe talked, I feel like this couple should have been caught a lot sooner. So my cautionary tale, I'm not judging the people in this story, but my cautionary tale is if somebody calls and tells you that their kid died, say something to someone, indicate something. Like even if it's a close friend that's not okay, you're protecting a person who hurt a child. Like please, please, please talk to authorities. Musing number six. I thought it was interesting in regards to the nonprofit that the family had reached out to to get Christmas presents from, that not only was Aron's name not on the list, but Aaron Thompson Jr.'s name was not on the list. And that has to make you wonder if that was some kind of punishment for him, or could he be the next child that was going to be targeted for this kind of abuse and Thank goodness not this kind of ending. Aaron was able to escape the situation before that happened. Using number seven. I found it interesting that Lowe had passed away prior to the indictment. And we do know that she had a history of heart issues. And you've got to think, like, having done or know whatever you do about this child's death has to weigh on you a lot. And when you already have a heart condition, I could see very easily why she went to an early grave. Musing number eight. The defense's claim that Lowe had killed Arone and that Thompson was just kind of there and then helped cover it up is pretty insane to me for two reasons. First off, this, I mean, this could be true, but I always think it's so, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, I guess disrespectful when stuff like this comes up when the person's already deceased. Like, you're going to drag their name through the mud. And not that Lowe is innocent by any means in this, and she could have been the person to have killed Aron, but even if she was, what would that really matter? Thompson had so many abuse allegations against him that he would have ended up in jail for the rest of his life anyway. Using number nine, and I'm just pointing it out again. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but how, how, how important grand juries are in a case like this. Again, this is a nobody case that we've covered. We've covered a few of these recently, and it's so important to be able to really verify that case moving forward and making sure that case is solid to go to trial with. Using number 10, I just have to say these poor kids that were in this household, to think that they had no comfort in telling authorities the truth when they knew they were going to go home to these two people and they knew there would be punishment and who knows, even death if they told police the truth right out and that they couldn't tell the truth until they were in a safer place. And that just absolutely breaks my heart. And I think that's why you see a lot of abuse cases like this that fall through the cracks that, you know, you hear, you know, CPS sent somebody over and they didn't find anything or the kid didn't say anything. There's so much danger for a child who's in a situation like this to tell the truth because there is always retribution coming. And it makes this dynamic very hard to really break into these hard abuse cases. And my heart just so goes out to these children that had to endure this. And I know that 
getting into the foster system was probably very hard as well. I know that system is not perfect, but I sure hope that these kids are doing a lot better and a lot healthier and that they're a lot safer than they were in the home with Thompson and Lowe. Musing number 11. I do want to touch on, obviously, all of these children were extremely abused, but there is some inkling that Aron was kind of targeted for a lot of it. And I wanted to talk about this phenomenon because it is something that is very common in abuse cases. So when an abuser focuses on one child more than other children in the household, this is called the Cinderella phenomenon. It's also known as target child selection, and it really, really is not uncommon in abuse cases. We know that the reasons for abusers to be abusers are so ranging that it's really hard to find a lot of patterns in why this kind of activity happens. But in the Cinderella phenomenon, it's usually a redirective. The abuser is angry at something or someone else, and it usually gets taken out on this particular child. So when that child is then, you know, in the abuser's mind, identified as being one with this person or issue that they're having, whenever they have a thought about that thing, it gets taken out on that child versus any other child in the home. Well, a big shout out to Genesis again for sending this case along. It was very important to cover. It was very hard to cover. But as I say, the hardest cases to cover are often the most important ones. And please, please, please call Aurora PD if you have any information on where Aron's body may be. In the meantime, please feel free to connect with me. You can contact me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime, and you can find an email for me at altitudecrime.com along with source materials for this episode. Please take the time to follow or subscribe. We are slowly growing our listener base and it's been so exciting to see how much things have grown. We're hitting our one year next episode, which is just so cool. So please follow or subscribe and help other people find the podcast. Well, thank you so much for spending part of your week with me, and I will talk to you next Sunday on Altitude Crime. Episode 51, The Murder of Aron Thompson, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.